Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. And we are recording. So three years ago, what were we all doing? This. Panicking. (laughs) We were just trying to figure out this. We had never really done this, this Zoom thing. So that was, yeah, it was, it was March, 2020 when the entire world came to to a shutdown and everybody had to reinvent their lives and it's still sort of going on in many ways. We've changed a lot. For example, doing a podcast by zoom or doing a podcast at all, which we had never really attempted before. Did we do the podcast before? No, no, no. Our first one, I remember this, our first attempt at a podcast was around Memorial day, 2020. Ah. And it was, it in, was a in, test. Your, in your backyard. Annette. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, it was just an experiment. And next thing I know, somebody had put it up on SoundCloud or whatever. And then it was like, okay, <laughs> what are we doing next week? I'm like, oh, I guess we have a podcast now. This is a thing now. I guess we're doing this. I feel like the entire, I feel like our entire way of working, we just sort of backed into it, you know, yeah. like everything just backed into it. So we, of course, are talking about COVID-19 and the way it has affected and continues to affect our lives. But first of all, let me do the introductions. That's Bill Sutton at the top of the podcast. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And Brendan O'Reilly's here. Hey, Brendan. Hi, everybody. I'm Brendan. I am the deputy managing editor. And once again, we have Joe Shaw with us, covered in cat hair today, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, suddenly my kitten has decided to uh, start dropping hair everywhere. So, hey, I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group, and I may be sneezing as a result. We'll see. Oh, so you're allergic on top of <laughs> Yeah, but uh, you get used to it. I know. I remember that to this day. I'm Matt Hinkle. I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. So, um, yeah. So what are we thinking? I mean, did you guys, it's sort of funny. We did a, a, a massive um, package in the paper and the issue of March 16th that looked back at what we remember. It was interesting reading over it, just some of the things that you forgot about, you know, yeah. leaving groceries outside to, so the germs would go away and the empty shelves. I, I read a, a lot of, of that copy as we all all did for it for that special section and it, it it certainly all came came flooding back and and i you know i mean we've we've said it before and and kind of half jokingly but you know about having ptsd from from you know from early covid and from the past three years and and i really feel like that's um the, the that's a truth i mean it, it it really um affected all of us i think in a um, in a in a negative way, and I, I think it's going to take a long time for us to you know to 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 come out of that. Yeah, well, it was it was truly terrifying, you know, because I remember yeah. everybody was being told they were going to close school down for a couple of weeks, and I remember we decided we were going to try to just put the paper out, and that was it. And then by the time the paper came out, it was like the furlough notices came in, like you no longer have a job. And same thing with my husband's work; he's in the film and TV business. 
providing power that just shut down. And so that was that, that initial total panic was like, Oh my God, what are we going to do here? Um, and this was before you knew whether you were going to, you know, actually be able to get through to unemployment, which was a whole nightmare. I don't know if it was super stressful. I mean, I was only furloughed for about a month, which was, you know, very fortunate compared to what other people went through. But that's what I remember is that initial panic is like, like, mm. it wasn't like, you know, oh, okay, my income's kind of dropped, but we have my husband's. It was like, we were done with any kind of income coming in. Mm. I was thinking about this um, after the deadlines. And I, I like Bill, um, read all of the content that we did for our COVID package and really came away moved by um, the work that our guys did and the stories that they told, which... Um, are not new. We knew they were happening at the time, but it's really interesting to have a little perspective of three years and and just to look back on it now and think of it. And I was thinking as I was driving home, those couple of years, and, and I think to some degree it coincided with the Trump years. And I, I don't want it to, I don't want this to turn political, but I mean, I do think that the Trump years brought a lot of disruption and change. And, and there was a lot of things in our lives where, where we, were, we were genuinely sort of unsettled by that, I think, as a country. But none of it prepared us for the level of disruption that we got with COVID. And I remember one of the things that, that really struck me was just sort of, there's no way to escape the co- I mean, with politics, you can step away and you, you can just sort of get right. away from it. And it doesn't necessarily, you know, politics is huge, but it doesn't affect your day to day life, your your, you know, your interactions with with people in your community necessarily, unless you let it, you can you can get away from it. You could not you're in everybody, every single person's entire life was affected by this. And, and I think it, it's stunning that we all came through it as well as we did, because that, I've said it before as sort of half-jokingly, it was like the largest social experiment in history that, you know, hey, what happens if we just shut down as a society for a little while and, and, and have to rethink all of the basic things we do, like go to the grocery store and go to people's houses for holiday celebrations and what if all of that stuff became life or death for a while it wasn't just um like you know i remember after 9 11 it was kind of like that but it was mostly an east coast thing you know like it didn't really affect so much the other parts of the country or the world i mean this was everywhere in the world too exactly even antarctica i remember when the first case of covid surfaced in antarctica you know it was like truly global um and crazy at the same time Hmm. Yeah. I remember the week leading up to it when there wasn't a shutdown yet, but people, it was, I don't know, I, I want to say that the shutdown was kind of unimaginable. Like we didn't really know how it was going to be. I don't think anybody really predicted it. But in those days leading up to it, when some people saw that something was going down and they started to flee from the city and come out east, the grocery stores were just being ravaged. So the Manorville King Cullen, which is where a lot of people stop on their way out east, that was totally picked over. But then in Southampton Village, the stop and shop across the street from our office, 
I went in there like four times that day and it was amazing how much things changed just every couple of hours. First, all of the the like Poland spring and the cheap water got taken up. And then you go back a couple hours later and it's like, okay, now we're going to put out the Avion water. And then you go back a couple hours later and then like the most expensive water in the store, like $6 a bottle for tap water. And now that's right in front of the store at the entrance. And then the chicken's gone and the red meat's gone. And then the canned food is gone. And then the toilet paper is gone. And it all actually transpired over the course of one work day. Wow. Mm. I think what's also weird is us having been out here. Like, I don't know if we realized that the hordes were going to descend. You know, that was also, I think, kind of strange in that, you know, you know, I, I always go for my walks in the woods and suddenly you're seeing people you've never seen on trails that you've always had to yourself, you know. Um, so that was that was the other interesting thing is how we realized here. I mean, it was different because New York City was dealing with like the constant ambulance sirens and just the bodies being buried in Potter's Field and the refrigerator trucks of, of the caskets. And, um, and I think that it was kind of, it's kind of weird out here. It's almost like, you know, it feels like the world is falling apart elsewhere, but you're kind of just like, okay, everything looks the same, but wait a minute, there's a lot more cars on my road or, you know what I mean? It just seemed, it was sort of strange how it, it affected us. It, cause we you're a lot, of, it's a lot easier to stay isolated out here, you know, um, except that suddenly we were just seeing this influx. Well, and, and you and you and you couldn't get a haircut for, for, I remember for three months. I remember. I, I and I and I stressed about that, and and it was like you know when you heard of these people that were cutting their own hair, and I'm looking for trimmers online, and you know, and and what a stupid thing to be stressing about, you know, in in a in a life and death you know situation where it's like oh my god my hair and just won't stop growing and what am i going to do and but that's the disruption that 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 joe was was talking about i think that just everyday things you talk, guys talked about um you know going to going to the grocery stores and i remember the 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 initial terror especially that that first month or two and and just running um practically running from from aisle to aisle and just putting crap in the in in the cart just to have something and and to get out of there and and looking around at everybody else and just seeing terror in people's eyes and um you know and 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 initially it was before you know before before masks and they were talking about masks and it was like where am i going to get a mask you couldn't get masks they're telling you you have to wear a mask but you couldn't get masks and that some people you know it was um Kim Covell, I, I think, are one of our, our editorial assistants, assistant editors, and um, she was making masks and she mailed me one. And it was like, I, you know, I finally had a mask and, and could stop. Um, I had had bandanas or something that that I was using, too. But it was it was just that um, for, for me, it, I mean, initially, I mean, it, it got it got easier and better because it had to. But but just terror and fear and, you know, and, and oh, my God, what's what's happening, what's going on and you know, fear, fear for the world and fear for the community and my family and friends and all that. But, but, you know, fear for me too, fear of death. I mean, that's just, that puts things in perspective, I think, pretty quickly. You know, I, I coincidentally, just a couple of weeks before March of 2020, I had seen for the first time 
the the movie Contagion, which is a 2011 uh. film with with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, is in it, and Jude Law and some other folks. And I had only seen again. I had only seen that just a couple of weeks before this all started. The parallels to that movie are really striking, and and that movie. I think may have come as close in in retrospect of capturing a lot of of what we what we saw. I mean, it, some of what it depicted didn't really happen. Fortunately, um, it could have. I think it's a reminder. It could have been a lot worse. But um, it's interesting how, as this whole thing was unfolding, I kept thinking back to things that happened in that movie and how they were being echoed in real life, and down to sort of the way the the virus started, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was kind of uncanny how similar it was. Um, that was not, the, the movie sort of ended, spoiler alert, the movie sort of ended with society returning to some semblance of normal, sort of like we are now. And, and um, so there was some sort of positive, we can get through something like that. Um, but I can't say I took a lot of uh, reassurance from <coughs> the parallels yeah. to that movie, which were terrifying. I think the probably the, the most stressful job to have out here would have been to be at the hospital. You know, I just was yeah. thinking back about mm-hmm. how little that they knew about procedures and how to um, how to keep one case from infecting another. And I had forgotten that whole thing about how nursing homes were told by New York state law that they had to take COVID patients. I'm like, what a nightmare. Um, the way that, that the virus just spread among the most vulnerable population um, because of that policy. Um, so I, I, that was, that was interesting because you kind of forgot about that kind of thing, you know, about how, you know, the whole um, yeah. people being intubated and the respirators and if they finally learned to keep people, they did better when they were on their stomachs than on their back. Which, which is something that, that the doctors here were leaders in. Oh, was that uh, right? Oh, I don't think I knew. Yeah. Wow. Did they ever determine that really factually, provably, that having COVID patients go to nursing homes actually brought COVID into the nursing homes? Because part of the idea is after you've had COVID for a while, you are no longer contagious. You might still be recovering or, or testing positive. You might be suffering from COVID pneumonia, but you're not necessarily contagious, which was the defense that Andrew Cuomo used. But of course, we know that Andrew Cuomo uh, says a lot of things. I mean, I guess I think, well, I guess the question would be at that point, you know, I mean, as soon as somebody test showed positivity in COVID, and I don't even know if there were tests in the early days, they may have just shipped them off. So maybe they were putting patients in nursing homes when they were still actively shedding virus. I don't know. And that's what I was trying to remember. Like, when did the COVID test become available? One of the quick that was, I mean, think about how scary that is that there's nobody, not even a test for it in the beginning, you know? I think it was yeah. fairly quickly, but they took forever to get results. I mean, you would take a test. Or to get the test. Like, that's the other thing, like the mask, you couldn't get a hold of the tests on your own. Remember, you had to go sit in your car in a yeah no i mean that was that was months if not if not a year before the the at-home quick tests came about right i mean it was you're right it was waiting in line in your car at and southampton hospital was doing it and, and other spots i live in riverhead and there were there was a, a spot about a mile from me and the, and the lines were just 
unbelievably long. Um, and and then there was there's a WebMD WebMD by my house and the and the lines people standing outside. I remember we had had a scare at at, at the office that um, just somebody had come in contact with COVID. It wasn't even somebody had contracted um, the the disease in in the Southampton office. And we were I had been in the office, so we were advised to go get tests. And and what a nightmare I had to go. So I went to this WebMD place. The line I showed up two hours before the place opened because i knew the lines were long and the line was was you know 30 or 40 people deep outside the door which was still locked at the time and i got in line and i remember it was cold it was you know it was winter time um still and um and 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 a security guard came along counting people and luckily i was the last one and the person after me they they sent away and they said we're only going to be able to test this many people and i was the last in line and you know and i went in and and did a test and i remember you know i did the test and then they had to call me several hours later to give me the results of of the test it wasn't anything immediate um talk about scary so I never went and got tested. I've only done one at-home test since COVID began because I've never been symptomatic. I've never known to have been exposed to somebody who had COVID. Like the circumstances never came up. But because we were being so socially distant, it just never seemed necessary. Like it's not like, oh, I better get tested. I, I you know, I'm visiting a nursing home, so I need to get tested today. By the time we went to visit a nursing home, you know, we were masking and we were vaccinated and and we just had to get our temperature checked and sign a paper that said, yes, I, I don't have any symptoms. I don't feel sick. But this this thought of, I'm not sure if I'm sick or not, but I'm going to go stand online with a lot of other people that think there's a chance they have COVID. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to do that. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think not a lot of people wanted <laughs> to do that, but I think people were required to do that for jobs or whatever. I mean, I don't think I was required that day. I think it was suggested and recommended, but there were jobs where there were exposures and people were told you can't come back unless you have a negative test. You know, I mean, so it was, I think a lot of people were forced into that situation. Well, so when did the office, cause I, you know, I got laid off pretty quickly, so I wasn't there. When did they decide at the office, like, okay, we're no longer doing this from the office. You guys need to. I, I recall that being very quick. Like I, I think that, that, uh, our publishers decided um, almost at the first moment that you could that it we was no it was it was it yeah. was it was yeah. before it was before the official lockdown right I yeah. mean I remember you you Joe Shaw talking to to the publishers and I think we wrote an editorial encouraging people to stay home to flatten the curve if you remember that term yeah. and I think and I think even before the official lockdown um, we decided to to work from home for a while. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles, very easy process. 
They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. What, what I think is interesting, though, too, is some of the questions you're asking, and that points out that we've reached the phase three years later. And when you take a step back and think about the things that we really don't know still about the disease, I mean, we don't really know the origin of it yet. That's still open for debate. And I won't open that can of worms because that is a tricky debate. But there is still a, a, a debate about how this whole thing started, um, what, you know, what the nexus was that created it. We don't really know. I've seen some, some reporting lately that's calling into question just how effective masks were. I mean, we don't know. We, we don't really know how effective it was. Was it just, uh, was that something that really genuinely helped or not? There's a, there's a lot of questions. I mean, you know, I don't think any of that should be taken as, I think when it was happening, we, we did what we had to do to, to stay safe. And I think that's appropriate, but, but there's, still we, we were, we were, we wore gloves too at first because yeah. we didn't know any better. And it took, it took weeks or months before, before they said, no, you don't need the gloves anymore and you don't need to wipe down your groceries. The, the gloves. Yes. You know, we, we did what we sure. could with the information we had on hand. We thought that we needed to clean the subways because it was a, a virus being spread by contact and we did our best with the information that we had. And then over time, the information that we have grows and gets better. And then we could do uh, mitigation that makes more sense. My thought about the masking is this. Early on when people were uh, you know, duct taping cloths to their face because they couldn't get their hands on a mask. Yeah, I, I don't think it probably did that much. At some point, everybody was wearing uh, hand-sewn masks mm -hmm. made out of t-shirt fabric. Uh, no, the t-shirt fabric wasn't doing anything. I mean, may, you know, maybe it made you 20% less likely, but it wasn't that effective. The surgical masks did help on a person-to-person -person basis when they were being worn properly. A big problem is that nobody wears them properly. And the N95s are what we all should have been wearing from the beginning, but they simply weren't available. But even N95s, for people who work in hospitals, they get fitted for those things. I, I talked to my friend who's a respiratory therapist, and he said, I actually have a small face, so it's hard for me to get N95s that fit. But they, this one size fits all. Everybody gets an N95. You know, clearly that doesn't work for children. It doesn't work for people with beards with different size faces. You might they might be less effective if you have a beard. You know, firefighters can't have beards that cover certain parts parts of their face because they need to wear a mask, right? Uh, obviously we're not talking about N95s, we're talking about the, the big oxygen or the big mass they put over their face so they get the, their air tank and they're not wasting that air. So do masks not work? Were, was masking ineffective? I think bad masking was ineffective. Poor mask wearing was ineffective. Wearing your mask and then taking it off anyway was ineffective. I think an N95 mask or a, pro a properly fitted surgical mask can be effective and I think it was effective was masking policy effective, I think is a different question. If you go in and you do a study of a town and you say, look, they had, they had a masking policy 
and the masking policy didn't reduce infections. Well, maybe the policy didn't, but it doesn't mean that masks don't reduce infections. You could have a masking policy, but it doesn't mean people are adhering to it. I think it's important that, that that's the, the thing I want to stress is I raised that question. I think it's a, a, a reasonable question to say we've reached the point now where we're beginning to look back and, and try and take a closer look at some of these questions and try and get better answers than we had at the time. I think I think we all did the right things at the time. You know, you, you have to do those things. I, I think it was appropriate yeah. to do those things when you don't know for sure. But it's going to be really helpful for the next time, and there will be a next time. Um, I think it'll be really helpful to know better what measures really were effective and what weren't. And, and um, I, think, I think it's unfortunate that some people are going to take, if, if theoretically it comes back that masks were less effective than we thought in spreading the disease, the worst reaction to that is, well, see, I told you so. That's not to, to say that, that- All those Karens in the YouTube videos are not justified for not wearing their masks. And let's put it this way. Would you really be comfortable with a surgeon who's doing surgery on you without a mask? Without a mask. There's yeah, a reason that they wear masks when they do surgery, you know? I mean. And, and yeah. look, not for nothing. Well, you can, we can debate or we, we can determine how effective they were. They made us feel better. For those of us that wore it, 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 made, it, it made it easier to go out in public and to do the things that we had to do and go shopping and all that and, and feeling a little bit safer that here's something I can do to protect myself and i think there's a psychological advantage to wearing the masks and there's also a thing I, I i just it really i really dislike it when people judge other people for wearing masks is you don't know what their own situation is or who yeah. they have at home that is at risk at getting ill you know bill i remember in the very early days of the pandemic uh and i believe it was in the late spring of 2020 uh it may have been a little bit later that year. No, it was later that year because it was in the fall because it was for you and I went to an outdoor event um, to the West uh, with the uh, jack-o'-lanterns and stuff that were lit up. And we all wore masks in our, in our oh, yeah, yeah. as did they required masks for the event. Um, and even though it was outdoor, uh, which at the time I think was was, you know, just precautionary. And 98% of the people wore their masks and had no issues with it. But I still recall, and I found it really chilling at the time, uh, a, a man and his wife pushing a stroller without masks on who passed us and made a nasty remark. It's something to the effect of- They, they, had, been, they had been told to, to leave yeah, because they wouldn't wear they a wouldn't mask. Wear a mask. Yeah. And, and them saying as they passed us, Oh, uh, there go there go some more people who do what they're told by Cuomo, um, yeah. And thinking to myself that they had a baby with them, and and just being sort of taken aback by that. But it, I think you're right, Bill, that the masks made most of us feel like we were doing something that made us feel better. But it also really did sort of provoke this. There was this ugliness. Well, there there was, but you know, at the same time. So if if it turns out that the masks were less effective, but we wore them and we felt better about it, 
I think for some people, maybe the opposite was true. If 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 they took a stand, I'm not going to wear a mask. I don't think they're they're effective or whatever. That's their psychological armor for not for people. We all felt powerless, and that was them taking some of that power back. That I'm going to make my own decision about whether I wear a mask or not. And personally, I disagree with that. Um, you know, but but that was taking that some some of that power back and saying I'm not going to be you know. I, I, I'm I'm not powerless here. Do we feel like people, some people saw people who wore masks as being elitist? Like it almost felt like it came down to that, you know, oh, you're obviously one of them or, you know, like it just sort of, it's sort of like put, put them in, a, in another column, just like a lot of other issues that put people in specific columns. I feel like it came at a moment when we were so divided as a nation and it just fed that narrative and it and i think that narrative took over everything yeah and yeah. uh you know i i think i think that's the well, our president at the time didn't help that. well i mean i i think it was just a general feeling across the country that we were very we were and are but we were at the time, I think, in the midst of the worst divide that we've had. Well, I just meant that he wouldn't wear a mask and and that discounted some yeah. of the. Right. I mean, remembering back to all of that, to the drinking bleach or whatever it was and, you know, and all that stuff that, that at times it felt like he wasn't taking it very seriously. Until he got it. Well, remember the tape from Woodward where it came out that he knew how bad things were but he was telling Woodward something. This is Bob Woodward, the famous Washington Post journalist, and telling the public yeah. something differently. Interesting that um, it's, I, I read though that masks were also controversial during the 1918 flu. Um, and it was a hmm. similar, it, very fascinating. Apparently there was similar backlash against mask wearing um, back then as well, so. This is Catherine Manu, and I'm the editor of the Sag Harbor Express and co-publisher with my husband, Gavin, of the Express News Group. Local community news matters more than ever, with misinformation spreading constantly across the internet. We live in the communities we cover. We are your neighbors, your friends, your family. We tell the good stories and, unfortunately, the bad. We focus on your triumphs and losses. But we can't do this without our subscribers. To subscribe, please visit 27East.com slash subscribe. And thank you for your support. I, you know, we, we touched on it earlier, and I, it was, there was a point I did want to make, which is I, I feel like we knew it at the time, and we've, we, we took a, steps to make sure people were aware, and we all talked about it. But I don't think even today we grasp just how difficult this was for, for healthcare workers. Yeah who were on the front lines. And, you know, I remember we did a big um, special section that was devoted just to telling the stories of the healthcare workers who were dealing with, with the crisis. And I really thought that was um, important to do because, but, but even with all of those efforts and even today, three years later, I cannot even begin to imagine what it was like to be a healthcare worker and, and, you know, and just any, and we can talk about, you know, healthcare workers in the city who were dealing with, as you said, the refrigerator trucks. And I mean, those were just not normal things to be dealing with. But think about folks at the local hospitals who 
yeah, when you work in healthcare, death is something you see on a fairly regular basis, but you don't see it as commonly as you saw it then. And, and, and on top of all that, the fear that each of those, those doctors and nurses and, and administrators and everybody else who were in that environment, the fear that you had to push through to provide care because you were, you were at risk yourself. And, and I think people, people were fully aware of that. And healthcare workers with families that couldn't go home to their families or the families were, were, were separate. I just watched a, a, a documentary the, the other night and, you know, it was one doctor and she said, the interesting part was she said, you know, I trained all my life for this. So of course I'm, I'm going to do it. And this was taped obviously during the early part of, of, of March, 2020. And she said, I trained for this all, all my life. Um, you know, of course I'm, I'm, I'm going to, to do my, to, to do my duty but she was also pregnant at the time and she had a husband and, and other children and the husband and other children had to go um, stay with, with family in another state. She was in New York city. Um, and, and, you know, imagine putting your unborn child at risk um, and, and having, and, and it was months, she went three months without seeing her family um, because they, she was dedicated. The one effect that we're probably still living with and will live with for a while is the number of healthcare workers who've decided to leave the field because of the stress and the the issues. You know, it seems like the field itself has changed. It's no longer the type of field that attracts people like it did. And, and going forward, that's going to be one worry is whether there's going to be enough nurses and doctors mm-hmm. to take care of people. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a thankless job for a long time, yeah. you know? Well, and they were heroes for a very long time in, in 2020, and, and that sentiment kind of mm-hmm. wore off a bit, I, I think, over the last, um, at least the last year, maybe year and a half. That's why I think it's important to remember it. I think I think that that it's it can't be said enough. I mean, I just, I feel like one of the most remarkable things that we watched was how the local healthcare system ramped up and and met the needs and i i just think that was an amazing thing and um even three years later i think we need to point that out and make sure people remember it and not just the healthcare workers obviously they were the top of the front line but delivery drivers and people stocking shelves at the supermarkets and and all those other frontline workers that you know that we don't think about that while everybody else was was sheltering in place and and staying safe um, you know, there there were people that were still making sure that everything was was working right out in uh, out in the world, and um, and they were all truly heroes. So, it's a HIPAA violation for me to ask, probably, but um, I may be the only person on the panel who actually got COVID. Right? I did not have not. I, I have not. I haven't had it. Yeah. That's that's Knock, knocking on wood. That's wonderful, and I made it all the way till January of this year, before before I got it. Um, and I, I have to say that um, my wife Dana, who is our photo editor, um, in the midst of the pandemic, I was able to disengage and work from home and stay safe and and not be out in the world. Dana really couldn't as photo editor. Yeah. She was still going out. And taking photos and she was very careful 
um, the whole time about masking and using hand sanitizer and all of that. And had, and she was able to avoid getting it despite the fact that she was on a very regular basis out in, in public and, and talking to strangers all the time. So um, I thought that was test, testimony to the fact that it could be done, that you could get through it okay. But it's funny, we got it in January we had actually gone away back to visit family for the holidays in, in Western Pennsylvania. And we arrived back here the first week of January and immediately both of us got COVID. Um, and we don't think we got it back there because nobody we were around um, in all the time we were back there, no friends, no family, nobody else, um, ever tested positive and we and you know it's it's you got to remember this was really a hotbed for covid infections and i think we got it after we came back but um i did a piece for our package about long covid and i have to i have to say I, it's it's really interesting because dana and i both got it and we got absolutely different symptoms dana got a high fever and lost her sense of taste and smell um, that was her symptoms and she got very, very severe body aches for a couple of days. I didn't have any of that, but I had the, the chest congestion and I ended up with lingering symptoms that, that, you know, it's March and I'm still occasionally, um, having some of those issues. So, uh, you know, it's one of the, one of the things that people need to be aware of out there now is, is dealing with long COVID now, which is, which is um, I spoke with um, a couple of doctors for that piece. And the consensus is that about one in five people who are infected with, with COVID end up with lingering symptoms, whether it's long COVID or just symptoms that last a little longer than a couple of days. Um, it's going to be something that needs some further study too, because they, they say that those symptoms can actually last for a year or more. I, I worry it may create some chronic situations. I, I mean, I still think there's so much that they don't know. And you say it could last a year. It could last longer than that for, for some people because, you know, it's only been around for, for a couple of years. I mean, they don't really, they don't know yet, right? Mm-hmm. We hadn't really talked about the schools because that was another big issue is forcing all of the students to yeah. go remote. And um, so, you know, it was weird. I mean, my daughter was a freshman in college when COVID struck. So that was strange. And she had to come home for that to, remainder of the spring semester. And um, her next year was totally remote. And I could, I could just see her, like, it was a rough, rough year having to do everything remote like that. But I wondered, you know, when you had kids here, starting kindergarten and in the middle of COVID and and other kids who were trying to apply to college and kids who were going into high school for the first time online. So I just wondered, what did we learn about how COVID has affected the school population through the stories that were done this week? Yeah, I mean, that's the other part of the equation that, again, I think we tried to talk about as much as we could through the whole thing. but, But we have to remember that an entire generation of kids um, went through something that's fairly unprecedented. And uh, the, the, I thought the way the local schools dealt with all of the massive uncertainty 
was pretty remarkable. And I, and, and, you know, I can't begin to say whether remote learning is going to end up being a real disaster in the long run for kids or not. But I, you know, I was in an event at East Hampton high school just recently where I interacted with, um, a handful of, of juniors and seniors. Um, and, and I have to say the resiliency of those kids is amazing. And, and I, I don't, you know, I'm sure there will be long-term impacts of that, but that generation of kids must be aware that, that they're unique in, in that way, that they, they went through something that their parents can't begin to fathom. Of course, their parents went through it too. And, and their parents had to deal with it in their own way. But uh, yeah, it's just another aspect of, of the, how the the, everything changed for a couple of years. And um, I think it's, it's an amazing thing that the school districts got through it as well as they did. That's, you know, yeah. I don't know how insightful that is, but I, I just, from watching from subjectively, uh, I just, I just thought, I thought they did a remarkable job. I, I think you know some of the coverage that we we did this week, and it was um, Desiree Keegan and Kitty Merrill that that went and spoke to some school officials. And there's there's certainly going to be repercussions. Kids are kids who went through that, especially in, in the younger grades, um, are a little bit um, are a little bit more behind. Um, you know, test scores are showing that, but hopefully they can, they can catch up. Um, what the real young kids that missed out in kindergarten, uh, you know, especially that first year, first grade, second grade was, was the social skills. And, and I think some of the, the officials talked about, um, kids that are, are very quiet and introverted now because they, they, they didn't they didn't learn those social cues that, that we all learn in the very early, early grades. And hopefully they can catch up from, from, from that stuff too. Um, you know, again, it's not, it wasn't just academic um, um, responses. It was, it was, you know, psychological issues, um, psychological issues sprouting from, you know, from the homeschooling, but at least there was, at least there was something, I mean, you know, ab absolutely. I mean, um, you, you could have just told the kids stay home or, or, or whatever, but I, I think Joe's right. The districts worked really hard. The superintendents, the administrators, and the teachers all worked so hard just to make sure that, that their commitment to the students, um, you know, was met in, in some degree. So what about long-term um, effects out here as far, you know, we saw so many people relocate to their second homes. Brendan, this is probably a good thing for you to weigh in on. How did that change things out here in terms of the home market and the number of people who live here year-round? Did most of those people stay or did they flee back to the city once vaccines came along? So the, the narrative here, if I could condense it, uh, is that when things started, people went searching for rentals. And even if they had a rental that was going to run Memorial Day to Labor Day, they were like, all right, get me in by April 1st, get me in immediately. Uh, one of the stories was people were in their cars driving east and said, hey, I'm on my way, find me a rental. So all everything that was for rent got rented. There were people who had never rented before they offered things for rent that got rented. 
Uh, you had other people who would normally go away and make their place available for rent over the summer, but they stayed put. So that limited the supply of what was available for rent. So that got gobbled up. Then what happens? Well, I can't rent anything I'll buy. What one anecdote I heard was somebody said, find me a house that if I sell it in two years, I'll only lose $50,000. Because they were doing the math to say, if it's 60000 for a rental, I might as well just buy a house. And it's not that much of a risk if I lose the money. Of course, those people ended up making money if they actually decided to sell those houses the way things turned out. So there was a thought that by the time the second summer rolled around, there would just be all this rental inventory on the market because everybody bought houses and now they could travel again and they want to turn around and rent out those houses they bought to make some of that money back. Well, that second summer rolled around and travel had not opened back up as had been anticipated. So they ended up staying in the Hamptons. It wasn't until summer 2022 where a bunch of people took off to Europe because they could again. There was this huge buildup of demand for travel that people could finally satiate. And when that happened, fewer people were looking to rent the Hamptons more people were trying to rent out their houses in the Hamptons. So last year was actually a good time to be looking for a rental because you could actually negotiate. So there was a burgeoning year-round population. I went and interviewed people who said, you know, I've, I've never been here in February before, and, and now we've been here for 10 months straight. So there was definitely a perceptible increase in population. We, we've heard some stories that it's still impossible to go to a restaurant in East Hampton Village on a Saturday night in the middle of February, March, which is pretty amazing. So there are long lasting effects to this. The fact that people could work on Zoom either five days a week or even half a week and maybe go into their office in Manhattan the other half means that people are still spending a lot more time out here. It has died down. It is not like it was in the first year or two. People certainly have retreated, but uh, the effects are lasting. There we go. And none of us will ever be the same. Yeah. It was definitely life-changing. Yeah. The movies have come to life. The Last of Us, that's the next. <laughs> the Fungus Among Us. Yeah. We've been watching too many. Uh, we're, we're re-watching The Walking Dead at the same time, so... Uh, yeah. So it's all zombies all the time at the Shaw house. It's time it's time to switch to to some different programming, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you think like the pandemic kind of drove us into darker fare or yeah. you know. Life is always darker than art. <laughs> I was watching The yeah. Walking Dead way before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, me too. I have a question. What was your quarantine or isolation productivity? or fun time project. And I'll start with one of the first things I did during the shutdown was I went out and I bought paint. And we ended up painting our whole uh, upstairs living room and dining room. And eventually over the course of time, uh, our entire porches, you know, the the uh, ceilings to the to the bottom got painted. Nice. Wow. I feel like I did nothing. I feel, I mean, I find that, I find it kind of scary. I just totally shut down. And you guys I have to remember, I was coming off a hip replacement when this happened. I was still, right. I was, I was working at home because I was recovering. I was supposed to come back in the office the very week that right. everything shut down. I forgot down. about that. Um, 
Yeah. So that was kind of bizarre. So I had already done six weeks of isolation, literally when the pandemic struck. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, you, you hear about, you know, famous authors writing the great novels while they're under a pandemic, but boy, I felt like, I felt like those were just lost years. I don't know. Maybe I, I kind of went into a funk. I, I don't even know. I mean, I did my laundry. I mean, that's probably felt. <laughs> But I wore the same thing eight times a week, you know, so the laundry did go down, you know, so I stopped spending as much on lunch, you know. Well, yeah, less, less laundry, more dishes. I respect people who've had projects. I I don't think I had a project. I think. I didn't either. I feel feel like I was very non-productive. So I'm glad Brendan got his house painted though. I think that's the way to go. I mean, I think that's an interesting thing. I now looking back at it, that would have probably been a better Thing, you know, something that's very physical yeah. rather than cerebral and trying to, you know, write something or, you know what I mean? I don't know. That whole idea of, of getting out there and painting, I could see that being very therapeutic um, in a pandemic. So I'm going to put that on my list for next time. Next yeah. time I have to keep paint handy. I, I I bought a bicycle and I don't know if this is a project or not, or just a repercussion. I, I was prior to the pandemic was going to the gym a lot and I was looking for an outlet. And and I'll tell you in that early, in the early lockdown, driving that bicycle through, through Riverhead with no cars on the street, it was really, it was really neat. Um, but you got to see as things started to, to, to loosen up, that was my bellwether is, is I couldn't ride the bike on certain streets anymore because all of a sudden that traffic, you know, had come back and, and, uh, you know, it kind of limited where I could go. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now it's like, I feel like the roads out by me have gotten so busy. I'm terrified yeah. to ride my bike now here. Yeah. I don't know that I would do it anymore. It really picked up. So. All right. Anything else? I, I feel I feel bad for um, for the millions of people who died, and and I'm very grateful at the same time that that we all made it through and uh, and survived, and are hopefully a little bit stronger for it. I think you know. I think it was weird. I don't know, Joe, if you maybe went through this too, or maybe any of you guys either. But um, you know, my my cousin actually died of it. I think in late twenty twenty one. Um, but it was just strange having a family member. I hadn't really been in close contact with him, but just like sort of not being around and then just sort of getting the news. And it's just like, and that was over, you know, over a year ago. And it's just, it's just strange the way that families live these days when you're so far away from somebody and, you know, a family member who I wasn't that close to, but who was a family member and it's just like gone. And that's, I think what's also strange is just the way that people sort of went out of our lives um without any sort of marking of it in a way i i didn't lose any family members thank goodness but um a very dear friend very dear friends of ours lost their adult son who who had just gotten married um and he was in his i think he was in his late 20s if i remember and the 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 repercussions of that um, that happened on my birthday too, which mm. um, made it tough too. It just the repercussions of that are very difficult. Um, and I I thought one of the great things that that was part of our package that we did just recently on the the three years 
was the remembrances of people who died. And I, I think it, it's so important to, to do that. And, and I honestly, it's a little breathtaking when you see, you know, just the local impact and, and in no way was that comprehensive. It was just a sampling of some of the people who died and some of the people who were important to local people and some local people who, who everybody knew um, who, who died in the pandemic. Um, it's, it, it's important to keep that in mind. And those losses, I think, are the, are, are the, the one thing that we have to take away from this and, and not forget about. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's rough. And I don't think anybody got through it without being touched in some way. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.